0: Welcome to the Ignatius Press Podcast. I'm Mark Brumley. I hope you enjoy the discussion in this episode. For more information about Ignatius Press, check out our website at ignatius.com. Welcome to the Ignatius Press Podcast. I'm Mark Brumley. Atonement. Well, many people hear that word and think of the 2007 film with Keira Knightley and James McElvoy. Others – Perhaps better informed, think of Margaret Turek's book, Atonement. Dr. Margaret Turek is the academic dean, dean at St. Patrick's Seminary in Menlo Park, California. She's a professor of theology. She holds a doctorate in sacred theology from the University of Freiburg in Switzerland and a master's degree in theology from the Dominican School of Theology, Philosophy and Theology in Berkeley, California. Welcome, Dr. Turek.
1: Well, thank you. It's good to be with you, Mark Brumley.
0: Yeah, well, we're here to talk about this outstanding book uh, you are the author of, called Atonement, Soundings in Biblical, Trinitarian, and Spiritual Theology, published by Ignatius Press. And I want to begin by asking why a book on atonement?
1: Atonement. Well... I will um, refer our listeners to a lovely interview in uh, Catholic World Report where I share uh, a personal reason uh, behind my writing of this book. It has everything to do with a, I'll say, a a spiritual experience, uh, an encounter with God um, while gazing on a crucifix. But since I share that in the CWR interview, let me move on just to uh, underscore that atonement, I mean, the theme of atonement is at the center of Jesus Christ's mission. And indeed, it, it is at the center of the gospel. The gospel we're commissioned to proclaim. The good news has everything to do with atonement. Being accomplished.
0: Okay. What does the word atonement mean, though? A lot of people will hear that word and they, they, they'll have certain connotations. They won't necessarily know what it means. How would you describe or define atonement?
1: Well, atonement. Atonement is sometimes um, spoken of in terms of, say, reparation or uh, expiation. Reparation, expiation, Are often regarded as as synonyms. Sometimes you hear folks uh, explain the meaning of the word atonement in terms of its outcome, its goal, at one moment. But my four guides, whom I use, I rely on in, in my book, my four guides are not so concerned with, say, the etymology of the word atonement, and etymology is a study of the origins and history of of a word. Pope John Paul II, Pope Benedict XVI, Hans Urs von Balthasar, and Norbert Hoffman, my four guides, don't concentrate so much on the etymology of this word. But rather, they attempt to sketch out the real process behind the word. Mark, it seems to me that my four guides, um, they're more like choreographers than etymologists. They recognize that atonement entails a process, a dynamic, moving process. And to understand it rightly, one must grasp this dynamic process from beginning to end and come to appreciate this process as an interpersonal one. So when I use the, the metaphor of, say, uh, my four guides are choreographers, if you will. They sketch out uh, the pattern and movement of dancers. These dancers it's, are engaged in an interpersonal movement. There's a lead dancer and, and a corresponding dancer. And when it comes to the mystery of atonement, we'll find the lead lover, the lead mover, the initiating movement is that of God, the father, and the corresponding movement, um, the answering uh, movement is found on the side of the beloved son. And I, I, I hope I'm answering your question somewhat, but I'm, I'm, what I am doing certainly is refusing to narrow the framework within which we're going to come to understand atonement. We're going to burst outside the box of just a study of words to gaze upon uh, this movement of love, an interpersonal process of love between father, loving father, beloved son, united in this Movement that is the Holy Spirit, this bond of love between them, and this process, this dynamic movement, plays out from beginning to end in Sacred Scripture. So,
0: go ahead. So, so, so you've you've said an awful lot there in response to my my innocent question of what what do you mean by atonement? So we are hearing that it's a process, yes. that it's an interpersonal process, and we're taking it. Very deeply, we're 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 hearing that it is a trinitarian. It it reflects the trinitarian reality: Father, Son, and Spirit. Yes, um, I think a lot of people, when they hear the word atonement in a in a religious context, of course, the word has a broader usage, more generally in in society. But when they hear it in a in a religious context, I'm not sure that they immediately think. No in those kinds of Trinitarian terms.
1: I know. And hence the title of my book.
0: Okay. There it is. <laughs> she's hold, for those who are listening and not watching, she's oh, yes. holding it up.
1: <laughs> Bi- biblical Trinitarian and and sp- Soundings in Biblical Trinitarian and Spiritual Theology. What I do try to do is, and it's, I think, utterly necessary, We need to expand the framework within which even we Christians understand atonement. It ought not to be restricted to just, say, the history of religions and cultures or even philosophical ethics or juridical notions and practices. Atonement, biblically understood, has everything to do with the mystery of God.
0: Okay, so let's develop that for a moment. Well, perhaps more than a moment. <laughs> Normally people, again, in the theological context, we'll say atonement, that has something to do with Jesus dying on the cross. And sort of the caricature uh, that some people have of that is uh, human beings have sin. God is very angry at human sin, uh, but he's also got this nice guy side And so he doesn't just obliterate the human race. Uh, Instead, he sends his son into the world. And his son, who is innocent, who is the innocent son of God, decides he's going to take the father's anger. And it all gets directed at him. He gets obliterated. And God's anger having been spent Uh, now he can be nice to us. So (laughs) how is that true or false or different or uh, complimentary? I'm I'm giving the caricature, but yes.
1: Well, sadly, that caricature uh, has gained uh, influence, wide influence over the course of several centuries uh, among Christians. And that is going back to your very first question, Mark, Um, One of the reasons I I wrote the book on atonement is to um, work toward dissipating this false notion of atonement that is uh, more often than not um, the result of a distorted view, a distorted depiction of God the Father's role in the work of atonement. Uh, That distorted depiction of God the Father's role still haunts the Christian imagination. I have sat through uh, a couple of homilies on um, the cross event where, in some case, in one case, it was a bishop, in another case, uh, another very fine priest, but they spent the entire homily uh, trying to ward off this distorted depiction of God the Father, without ever getting into to the heart, though, of of the Father's role, his proper role in the mystery of atonement. So I'm glad you bring bring up that caricature. Sadly, it is all too commonplace um, in conversations about the mystery of a, of the atonement, and it does, I think, lie behind the modern aversion to the very doctrine of atonement. The modern repugnance to regarding the cross event as a work of atonement.
0: Well, um, tell us, mm-hmm. so g- give us the proper way of understanding it. We've heard the caricature. Now, kind of straighten us out.
1: Well, the first thing, the first thing I would do is let's let's if we want to start with atonement, we'll grant that atonement is a work of love. It's a work of love, and specifically. Atonement is a work of filial love.
0: Okay, explain it's, what filial
1: is. It's the love of a son. Filial love is the love of a son. And as such, filial love is has an origin. As a son has an origin. As a son derives from, is dependent upon, and images or imitates his father, so filial love derives from, is sustained by, and it images, it mirrors paternal love. So remember, if we go back to this um, notion of atonement as a process, an interpersonal process, even a dance, so to speak, a dynamic movement, if you're casting the spotlight on atonement, you're casting it on a specific dancer, or the 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 son, atonement is the work of a son. It's the work of filial love, but filial love always points back to paternal love as its origin, its generative source, and even its archetype that filial love mirrors. So, just think of say two dancers. If if you blocked out the uh, visibility of the lead dancer, you could, and just focused on the partner, the corresponding partner, you could still come to know and realize the the pattern and power of the lead dancer by looking at the corresponding movements of the, the partner. So in this case, atonement is a work of love, indeed, filial love. Filial love, by definition, is love that is engendered by another and that answers to another, that moves in correspondence to and thus mirrors the other. Does that make some sense?
0: Sure, that makes sense. Now, help us understand the role of sin in this, though, because most of us think of atonement as related to sin in some way, and you're talking about... Father and son, how does how does that sin notion fit in?
1: Okay, Mark, let me. Can I hold off on that just a bit because sure. I never I never did really bring the father's role in.
0: That's right. We
1: know Sorry. that the, the the father is has the lead in with respect to the work of atonement. The father is the generative, and he takes the initiative, and what he does is seek to father a filial way of loving that will confront and annihilate sin by bearing it away. But it belongs to the father, the loving father, to empower his beloved, his beloved son, to assert filial love against sin. In and by the power of filial love, Always dependent on paternal love as its generative source, in and by the power of filial love, sin will be born away. It will be annihilated. It will be dealt with. But notice what what I'm intent on doing is always expanding, say, the the framework, the focus, the camera angle to include the father. When you gaze on, on the son, Christ crucified in this consummate work of atonement. He, we need to understand him. as Whatever I do, I do only what I see the father doing. The father is at work in me. Believe this because of the works I do and the consummate work is atonement. So the father remains at work with, with as the initiating lover fathering filial love, producing filial love, empowering his son to love in such a way that this love bears sin away. Now, you brought up the, the notion of paternal wrath. We could talk forever and a day about divine wrath, God's wrath. What I ought to say right here is that divine wrath has a role to play. But we need to understand divine wrath correctly.
0: Okay, there. help us to do that. Because most of us would normally think of divine love and divine wrath as, as opposite a- sides right. of things. And so God's mad and Jesus is, no. is, offers atonement and that somehow brings in God's love. And you want to say first that the fa- this all originates in the Father's love. Yes, yes. But relate that to, to divine wrath.
1: Okay. Just to reiterate what you're saying, that atonement, the the work of filial love and bearing away sin, atonement is the result of the Father's love. It does not result in the Father's love being revived or jump-started, so to speak. No. And that's why, that is why all that the Son does is to the glory of the Father. He's revealing the He's revealing the true character of the father. And the, but the father is himself facing sin, dealing with sin, but not in, as a solo act. The father as father, he, he is always at work in the son. What the father does is father. <laughs> he fathers a living image of his own manner of loving. That, that's what God does. So he fathers a beloved who mirrors the father's manner of loving, thereby glorifying the father. Well, wrath is it's present in scripture uh, from beginning to end in the Old Testament, as well as in the new. And so we don't want to simply dismiss it. But what we want to do is purify it. Uh, the notion of God's wrath Um Purify it from those flawed views that regard divine wrath as somehow separate from at odds with God's love, as if the, as if divine wrath and divine love were mutually exclusive, not at all as as one and, and I follow my four guides as the four the, guides right my but four guides. Remind us who they are again. Okay, they are. We got two popes and two theologians. We've got Pope John Paul II, Pope Benedict XVI. We've got Hans Urs von Balthasar and Norbert Hoffman. And these four guides, what they do is they, once again, when they search the scriptures, they don't search the scriptures as etymologists. They're not thinking. They, there are some. I love them because of their contemplative bent. So they are like doing this kneeling theology. There they are. They're going through scripture and they're they're discerning this process, this this movement of love. And they come to to see that gradually in the Old Testament the pattern of the father's love becomes more pronounced. It becomes more or more easily delineated. And what comes into view is that divine wrath is actually the form that divine love takes? It's a form of divine love confronting sin.
0: So it. So we, again, we want to underscore that there's a unity here. These things are not. Uh, they're not opposites. separate
1: Right. They're not mutually exclusive. It's. It wrath is the form that love takes when it encounters sin when it faces sin, but, but it's not um, in facing sin. Wrath is not simply um, sort of an indication or expression that God feels thwarted. What we see is wrath being a form of divine love. Wrath in the Bible is, is signaled when God hides his face in the face of sin, when God conceals Himself, uh, hides His face. In the face of sin, um, it, it's not an act of violence. God is is not wielding a sword or, or you know, destroying nations. He rather signaled every time God hides His face. He turns his face away. Now, Mark, I know I, I even hear myself. My voice is getting soft because this is kind of a <laughs> this is kind of a sacred. So my, my my guides they're very prayerful when they do theology, and so it's like as they're investigating this mystery, they are they're approaching. It's like approaching the burning bush. They're approaching this mystery of divine wrath. Now, think of this. God, remember, what does God do in the covenant um, already in the Old Testament? He, He fathers. He establishes a relationship such that he is thereby able to father his living image in this world. That living image, his chosen one, his son is to be his the locus of his glory, to be the place, the one in whom the nations will will see the true character of God and so come to worship the true God. Well, so God shows his face to Israel. He chooses this nation, this people as his beloved son, and he shows them increasingly so his face, if you will, his true character, in order that his beloved, his beloved son, in seeing Yahweh, in seeing God's true character, will thereby be moved and empowered to image this God, mirror this God, and thereby reveal this God to the world, giving him glory. Now, when when Israel Instead of keeping its faith, its own face, fixed on God, its gaze fixed on Yahweh, such that its own conduct, its its way of life is, you know, mirroring and making Yahweh known. When instead Israel turns its face away and it does that first, when it turns its face away from Yahweh, its conduct no longer uh, reveals God's glory. Uh, rather, its conduct now become Israel becomes a counterfeit icon, a counterfeit image. God cannot let this go on. I mean, God's, Israel is called to be God's living image for the sake of the nations, that all nations might be blessed through it. God can't, God can't enable this dysfunction. Mm-hmm. So once Israel turns away, and becomes a counterfeit image, One of, the, the Bible tells us, well, God, in a certain sense, turns his face, hides his face, conceals his face. He, if you will, withdraws or conceals himself so that neither his image, Israel, nor the nations are fooled into thinking this counterfeit is the real thing. God has to withdraw, conceal himself. And that—that's the moment when His wrath is evident. It's His—it's God's way of saying no to sin. You know, I oppose this. I cannot tolerate. I cannot condone or endorse this way of life. This co- this this conduct. It is not my living image. I turn my face away. Does that make sense?
0: Sure. So how does Jesus fit into this? So we've well, Israel and the nations.
1: Yes, yes, yes. Bring well, us up
0: to Jesus here.
1: Okay, real quick. Well, I know, I know. This is what I'm saying. It's the whole darn history of salvation is this dance playing out. But the, the interpersonal process of this work of atonement, mind you, it, it's only gradually revealed. But let me just say this quickly. Already in the Old Testament, read my book, chapter 1 already in the Old Testament, even this turning away his face, that's a strategy. It's a strategic withdrawal. It's purposeful. God is going to, his his self-withdrawal or his hiding his face, his self-concealment is actually a move, a move, a strategic move God makes in order to enable his beloved to atone for sin and thereby in the conditions of a sin-ruptured relationship to become his living image once again. Now, I packed a lot in there. right? Uh, but, so read the book, ladies and gentlemen, chapter one. <laughs> now Christ Jesus, you wanted to say, okay, how, does this, uh, how is this connected with Christ? Well, let's fast forward up to the very climactic moment of Christ's mission. He's on the cross. And he says, I, it, it's for this, you know, I've come into the world. And and so here he is. I'm going to love the father and and love all to the end. On the cross in Mark and Matthew, his his last words are, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that is indicative of the son, if you will. Well, the son incarnate now taking our place, representing not only Israel but all of humanity that was created to be God's beloved sons in the eternal and divine beloved son. So on the cross, God is representing all of Israel and all of humanity. And he is, what he does there is he lets the father's love take full effect in his humanity, be at work in his human heart, in his sacred heart, enabling him, empowering him to bear the consequences of sin with filial love. One of the consequences of sin is what we just said. Uh, divine love must take the form of wrath in the face of sin, that is, hiding his face. And so on the cross, Christ is, in some respect and to some extent, experientially, self-enduring. The chief effect of sin, which is the felt absence of the Father. The Father, if you will, hides his face, conceals himself from his son incarnate, from Jesus of Nazareth on the cross. Jesus articulates this, gives expression to his filial experience when he cries out, oh, you know, you've forsaken me. Um, And yet not. Remember, that's why chapter one is so important. You see that even in the Old Testament, this is a strategic move on God's, on the father's part. And the son incarnate knows it. So what he knows is he on the cross willingly, willingly lets God's fatherly love take the form of, excuse me, wrath. So long as you understand wrath as a strategic move of love, where the father is going to enable the beloved to bear the full consequences of sin and the chief consequence being alienation from the father, distance from the father. Sinners have turned away from the father. So they suffer the father's absence in some real manner. The father sets and the son, they know their dance is going to lead them into this dramatic situation. And so there's a moment on the cross when the father, if you will, in this dance, the father turns his face away, not his heart, but his face so that thereby the son can indeed bear the chief effect of sin, the felt absence or distance from the father. But remember that that felt absolute distance. The effects of sin, sin must be borne away with the power and and by virtue of the power of filial love. Filial love is always fathered love. The father is always at work. Paternal love is engendering filial love, empowering filial love. So to see the son cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's crying out, all right, here's the hour, the hour of darkness, when the father's is hidden from me. But this is a work of love, paternal and filial. And the son, in in some respect, knows the father is always at work in him, engendering this filial love that can endure the father's love in the form of his self-concealment.
0: Right. So he's able to. Does that to, make sense, Mark? He's, he's able to. Uh...
1: They are the chief effect of sin. yeah. Right.
0: Love with filial love, despite this turning away of God's face. Uh, and so then how does, and I know we just have a little bit of time here, but how, so we, we, we've talked about sort of the Old Testament background of this New Testament centrality of Christ and the event on the cross. How, what's the link between Jesus's filial love here oh. and enduring this wrath, which is, is an expression of divine love, What's the link to us? How do we how do we connect with that?
1: All right. So no, Again, I, I don't know how many times I'm going to have to insist that your listeners purge, purify the right. notion of wrath right. from any any violence, any quality exactly. of violence. And da, da, da. No, it's a modality of of love. Um, and there's a good part in my book in chapter two that really talks about the cross event in, the, in these terms. All right. But now you're saying, well, what about us? What what does this mean for us? Um, notice, remember, we are we are created. This is what the New Testament brings to light in full view. Finally, every human being is created, is made for one ultimate purpose to be um, a beloved son in the son vis a vis the father, to be this uh, uh, corresponding dancer, to be drawn into this movement of love between the father and the son. And we're given the Holy Spirit. Kind of, I got the music in me. We're given That's the right. Holy Spirit, and it's the spirit of sonship. That, that is poured into our hearts. And it's, it's by virtue of the spirit of sonship animating our hearts that we are attuned to Christ in his filial relationship with the father. And so we, we're, we're in harmony now with this movement. The point is, is this, to be a son is to live out this relationship of love. It's to day after day, moment after moment, allow God's fatherly love to be at work in us, shaping us, conforming us to the image of his son and thereby to the to an image of the father so that we are, are to his glory. Well, so when the father sends the son to atone for sin once and for all, he means thereby for this dance between father and son to open up To open up by the gift of the Holy Spirit and draw all humanity into the son's play of love, work of love in this fallen world. So when we live as sons, act as sons in this fallen world, we are inevitably uh, drawn into and participate in this work of atonement to live our filiation, our being born of God, our identity as children of God in this fallen world. Can only mean can only mean uh, asserting our sonship, uh, letting God father us so lovingly and so perfectly that we will endure the effects of sin in this world by the power of of filial love given us through the Holy Spirit of of, of sonship. If that makes sense, and how how are the effects of sin evident in this world? We see the effects of sin from within and from without. Uh, we could go on and talk about particularly um, the, the contemporary situation of secularization, where God in our culture, more than almost any other culture in, in human history, God is quite deliberately marginalized. Right. We, you know, he's, he's pushed to the margins of our minds. He's absent. Now, he's not hiding his face. Notice again, we're 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 turning turning away. away, Yeah. Yeah. It's so we we live in a culture now that is anything but uh, worthy of a term like Christendom. We almost live the hallmark of the modern age is sort of the presence of the absence of God. So, I think this book on atonement, well, the mystery of atonement it is incredibly timely and relevant to us because we are Christians who now find ourselves really in a culture that is almost godless right. from which even all the the um, vestiges of God are more and more hidden um, and so for us to be able to know this pattern, what it is we're called to do precisely in these circumstances is to bear. This almost godless state with Philly love. By knowing God is with us, He is engendering in us a love that can endure this situation, such that we will transform it into a place in which God is present and fathering His His loving uh, and obedient children. Did I make that? You made Did sense. You, you make
0: you made lots of sense. Uh, we have truncated of course this discussion but I love the I, way you brought that back not just to in terms of our own personal uh enduring the uh the sense of the absence of God and and the present situation but also the transformative power of doing that with filial love that yes yeah that that's very that's a very important message I think we need to hear today I think so many Catholics uh, more generally so many Christians don't have that kind of understanding of what it means to be a Christian and the link between uh, Christ's work on the cross as we say and the work of their lives. I right. think there's a there's a big disconnect. Right. One of the things I loved about your book is how you not only provide the theological background in the Old Testament and in of course at the center of it the New Testament but that spiritual theology you talk about that biblical Trinitarian spiritual theology component of atonement that gives us a role to play and, and links our Christian living to uh, what we see with the Son and the Father's love in the uh, Trinitarian dimension of that. So,
1: absolutely. I want to get a shout out to the Carmelites. You know that I was uh, yes I received spiritual formation uh, as a Carmelite for a few years. And that Carmelite charism really enabled me to un- understand the um, importance of atonement—that it is at the center, not only of the gospel, but then of of Christian existence generally. And when you look at this increasingly sort of Godless civilization, what we should we should see it right, as an opportunity. All, all right, this is exactly the material for the expression of filial love asserting itself against sin. Get up, get going. (laughs) We need to to train Christians to know the significance, the pattern of loving, as it should be in confronting sin and bearing it away.
0: Beautiful. Well, Dr. Turk, there's so much we could say about this. We want to encourage people to get a copy of your book. It's called Atonement, Soundings in Biblical, Trinitarian, and Spiritual Theology, published by Ignatius Press. People can get that at their local Catholic bookstore They can go online to Ignatius.com or other places where books are sold. Thank you so much for being with us, Dr. Turek. Thank you. This podcast has been brought to you by Ignatius Press. We encourage you to check out our books and videos at your local Catholic bookstore or wherever else books and videos are sold. You can also sign up to receive special discounts on books and videos at Ignatius.com. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. Please like the podcast on the website or app from which you listen to it. And please tell your friends about it. I'm Mark Brumley, and on behalf of everyone at Ignatius Press, thanks for listening.